0: suggest a Sunday school, and uh, two other announcements, or one announcement anyway. Uh, at the back table there, on the red uh, tablecloth, there is bags of cookies. The Sunday school met here yesterday and had a great time uh, baking up cookies for uh, for us to enjoy and share this morning. So. On your way out, please grab a little bag of cookies. And uh, on your way out, way out doesn't mean immediately as this service has ended on your way out. It means after a time of fellowship, on your way out. Uh, second clarification, you all heard Pooven say that I had to keep it to one hour. I try and keep my preaching to about 45 minutes, which means I get extra time on Christmas morning. So you all heard, right? He said it, and I can take it to the bank. No, I can't. He means we keep the whole service to less than an hour. Uh, uh, Please take your Bibles again this morning to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we've been looking and unpacking last week and this week just really one word in that verse. But uh, obviously it's the entire Christmas story that we're looking at. And in a way it's the whole Bible story. Uh, Halfway through preparing, I was looking at all the verses. I was just kept adding into the sermon and and all the references I was putting in. And I thought to myself, really, uh, the the text for the sermon is uh, Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 21, and and including the maps too at some points. And I thought, no, it's too big. So just call it Matthew 1 verse 1, but we are looking at the whole Bible story. And uh, the, the text of the sermon this morning really is simply this, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David, the son of Abraham, and we are taking and looking to unpack the word Messiah. You may have the word Christ in your Bibles. Uh, Christ is the Greek, and Messiah is the Hebrew, from which the Greek is translated. And so that is our text. And uh, I want to pray again just before we begin and uh, ask for God's blessing. Loving Father, this morning we give thanks again for your goodness and for your grace to us. Father, we thank you for our Savior, the one who came to give us life, to rescue us from your wrath, from sin, from death, from hell, and give us eternal life. And Father, this morning we just seek your blessing and your help. Again, oh God, as, as proven prayed, Lord, we pray that your voice would speak to every heart in the room. That we would hear what you would say to us. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would preach a message that I could never preach. That every heart would hear. That every mind would be able to understand. And Father, our wills would be brought into submission to your word and your will. That we would believe and repent of sin. And know what it is to have life and life more abundantly. Father, we ask you for your help, and we do so in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, last week we saw that, first of all, we need a prophet. Uh, The word Christ is the word anointed, and we saw from the Old Testament that the word anointed covered three beautiful pictures of Jesus. He is the anointed prophet, the anointed priest, and the anointed king. And so we looked at our need for a prophet to come and reveal God to us. Without God's prophet coming and speaking, we will not know who God is, what God requires of us, and what we are to believe in response to God. And God, in amazing grace, has sent his prophets to speak and write his truth so that we can know God through faith and repentance. We can know ourselves. We can live in a manner that pleases God. Christ came. Fulfillment of that promise representing and speaking for God to us. Secondly, we saw that we need a priest to speak for us or to represent us to God. Because our sin and our rebellion against God, we have offended and angered him. We're now estranged and cut off from God. We need a mediator to represent us to God and God to us. And Jesus Is the Christ the anointed high priest that we all need? He came as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron. And he offered himself as the once for all sacrifice for sin. Jesus is both God's perfect anointed prophet and God's perfect anointed high priest. He is that mediator between us and God. At this time of year, as we all pause to celebrate and remember the birth and arrival into our world of Jesus the Christ, we want to consider, thirdly, that Jesus the Christ is the anointed king with all authority in heaven and on earth. Once you notice, you should have gotten a little, uh, I think it was a pink-colored, green, green green-colored note sheet, or you can get off the email from last night to follow along if you like. Uh, First of all, Jesus is the promised king. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Beginning way back in Genesis, God made several promises regarding different persons' offspring, their descendants. In Genesis 3.15, God promised Eve that her offspring would one day crush the serpent, who was Satan. She initially thought it was her firstborn son, Cain, but he turned out to be the world's first murderer. But centuries later, as Christ came as that promised offspring, he was the answer to God's promises. In Genesis 22 in verses 15 to 19, God promised Abraham that because of Abraham's obedience in not withholding his son, his only son Isaac... Abraham's offspring would one day be the source and means of God's blessing to all the nations. And Christ came as that offspring. In Matthew 1 verse 1, he is the son of Abraham. And Paul says in Galatians 3 and verse 16 that Christ is that singular seed, that descendant of Abraham promised so many centuries earlier. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, God promised through Jacob, that Judah's offspring, the, Jacob was Judah's father, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. And Judah's offspring will be the nation's king. He would hold the scepter of power to whom, and this promise goes way beyond uh, David and all those kings, to whom the peoples, plural, will owe their obedience. Jesus the Christ came as a fulfillment of that promise to Judah. In Numbers 24, verses 17 and 19, you may remember the story that God promised through Balaam, who was the not-so-godly, donkey-abusing prophet, that a star would rise from Jacob, a scepter would rise from Israel, he'll crush Moab and break the sons of Sheph, and then it says he will exercise dominion. Jesus the Christ came as a fulfillment of that promise. In 1 Samuel 2, Verses 7 to 10, in particular verse 7, God promised through the praises of godly Hannah that he would strengthen and exalt his anointed king. It's the first mention of Messiah in in Scripture. Centuries later, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, came in fulfillment of that promise. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 to 16, God promised David, the great king David, through the prophet Nathan... In response to David's desire to build the Lord a temple, that God would instead build David a house, a lasting dynasty with a king to sit on his throne forever. Before he died, David in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 5 described God's covenant promise to him as an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. David had absolute confidence that one day a son would come who would fulfill that promise. Psalm 89. In verses three and four, God tells of the covenant that he swore to David, that he would establish David's offspring and throne forever. In Psalm 132, verse eleven, the Lord swore to David and saying, Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. And Jesus Christ came, the fulfillment of his promises. God keeps the promises he makes. God is worthy of our trust and obedience because he keeps his promises. Why should you trust the Lord? He always keeps his promises. Sadly, as you read that genealogy there, you'll see that from, uh, the, sorry, the, from rising from one man, Abraham, to a great nation under David, as it's listed in Matthew 1, verses 2 to 6... There followed a great decline from Solomon to the exile. And you see that in verses 6 to 11. There are no godly kings in Israel's uh, northern kingdom. And there's only a few godly kings in Judah's southern kingdom. Because God deals with the nation based on its king's faithfulness. And what happened was they were taken to exile because they were unfaithful people. But you know what I was... Walking around yesterday in the neighborhood and my faithful uh, letterboxing partner, Peter, was on the other side of the street. And we're putting Bibles and tracts in letterboxes and and, uh, hoping for some conversations. Didn't have very many. And I started thinking about this. God deals with his people on the basis of his kings, their king's obedience. You say, what's so significant about that? In the case of Israel, they were put into exile because of their king's unfaithfulness. But we have a king, don't we? And because of his faithfulness and his obedience to his father, we have an absolutely secure salvation. Not because I did something right. Not because you guys are all lovely people. I mean, you are lovely people, don't get me wrong. But not because of that. But because the king in whom we identify with and the king in whom we trust has faithfully and perfectly and sinlessly obeyed his father to the very end, death on a cross. And so because of our king's faithfulness, we look forward to a joyful, unending eternity in his presence, rejoicing. We'll be made like Jesus We we can't even imagine what that will be like. Because we can't, in our context, we cannot even comprehend what it is to be sinless. Or we can't even look at somebody in our physical eyesight in this room and say, Ah, there he is. He's a sinless one. We'll one day be like him. No, we have to look far beyond that. We have to look in the pages of Scripture to see the Lord Jesus Christ As the one who sinlessly, perfectly obeyed his father. And because he obeyed God perfectly, God deals with us on the basis of our king's obedience. What a hope we have, amen? That's a great hope for Christmas this year. Anyway, meanwhile, back in Israel in the Old Testament, Israel and Judah's kings weren't very faithful and obedient. And so God delivers them into a promised exile. And it must have seemed absolutely hopeless for them as they marched to exile. And apparently their, their captors used to tease and mock them. Why don't you sing us one of the songs of Zion? Come on, get Eber on the piano and Joel on the guitar and we'll sing one of the songs of Zion. And the people of Israel can't do it. They're so down and so weighed down because the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is torn down. Hundreds of thousands lie rotting in the sun. The remaining nation is taken away to exile. And it seems absolutely hopeless. But God's not finished. God made promises and God is going to keep them. God restored a remnant back to the land. The temple and the city walls are rebuilt. The law of God is brought by Azra and read, and the people worship. Temple worship is reestablished but still... No Davidic king ascends to the throne for centuries. And what has happened is the offspring hopes of Eve and Abraham and Jacob and so on have become a Davidic hope looking for that king. And the Davidic hope has grown into a messianic hope and longing which was met and fulfilled as the New Testament opens and the Apostle Matthew in chapter 1 verse 1 identifies Jesus. This is the one. He's come. God has kept his promises. He is David's rightful son as he traces his lineage back to David and Abraham. He is the Christ, the son of David, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Listen, beloved. The Lord, our God, is the faithful God. He cannot lie. He cannot make a promise and later break it. In Numbers 23, and verse 19, the Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? And the obvious answer is, of course he will. He will keep his promises. God kept his promises. Christ is the promised king. In Matthew 2, verse 2, Jesus is the Christ-born king of the Jews. In Matthew 4, verses 17 and 23, Matthew gives a summary statement of Jesus' earthly ministry. He says he was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. In his discourses in Matthew, Jesus taught the truths of the kingdom. In his parables, he described the kingdom, in, in his actions... He exercised his dominion as the king of all the earth. How did he do that? By healing diseases in Matthew 4 verse 24. By cleansing lepers, for example, in Matthew 8 verse 3. By raising the dead, which he states in Matthew 11 and verse 5. By rebuking and stilling storms. Uh, Who ever been here in a really bad storm at sea? Any of us? You have, yeah? In your sailing days? I haven't been in a really bad storm at sea. I've been in some bad storms around here. Uh, at our home one day, we had lightning hit the middle of the ground right in our, our courtyard, and the bang was so loud, it just rattled all the windows and rattled my knees together for a while, I'll tell you. And we think about storms, we have some concept. But these sailors out at sea, in a, wouldn't it be a very big boat, rocking and tossing like mad? And the Bible tells us that Jesus spoke a word, and the storm stopped. He exercised dominion as the king of all the earth, stilling a storm. In Matthew 21 verses 1 to 9, Jesus rides into Jerusalem just as Solomon did in 1 Kings 1.38 on David's donkey. So Jesus rides a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And he's greeted by the disciples and crowds and they're shouting, Hosanna. To the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They saw him as their fulfillment of all their expectations and hopes. And he is. And above all those ways that Jesus exercised his His kingship, he exercised his priestly kingship by suffering and dying to deliver his people from our greatest problem, which is God's wrath against all of us. And he died to deliver us from our greatest enemies that we all face, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And Jesus exercised his kingship to deliver all who repent of sin and believe the gospel. What a deliverance that is that Jesus worked for us. Jesus, the promised King, suffered and died and rose again to deliver us from the domain of darkness into His kingdom. Paul says in Colossians chapter one and verse thirteen, He delivered us from death into life, from God's wrath into God's family. You realize that's a, that's an infinite distance. No human being, no matter how big your measuring stick that you could pull out, could possibly measure the distance that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. He's delivered us from sin and depravity into holiness and purity. He's delivered us from being prisoners in darkness into freedom in the light. God promised That Christ would come and come he did. He delivered us from hopelessness to hopefulness. God promised and he came. The Lord our God who makes promises keeps promises. The God who kept those promises also keeps every other promise that he has made in scripture. Do you believe that? We know them. We even embroider them on pillows and stick them on our couches. Or paint them in fancy paintings and put them on our wall. We even get little bronze things made up put on our front door about the promises of God that we believe in, quote unquote. (coughs) But do we really believe those things? Listen. There is no inheritance of the blessing of God's promises up without faith in God and repentance of sin. Why did Israel not get it? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Paul says that in Romans, I believe it's Romans chapter 10. They pursued it by works of righteousness and never understood it. And God calls us all. To inherit those promises through faith and repentance of sin. So Jesus is first of all the promised king. Secondly, Jesus is a necessary king. In order to understand this, we have to go back to the day that Israel asked for a human king. It's back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In 1 Samuel 8 and verse 15 and then verses 19 and 20, they ask Samuel, give us a king. This is what they say, to be like all the other nations. To go out before them, to fight their battles and to judge them. And I think what they had in mind was, Samuel, remember back in the days of the judges, back when Joshua and the judges were on the earth and God raised up judges? And those judges delivered the people from all their enemies. Samuel, give us a king like that. Give us a king like all the other nations around us. And Samuel goes before the Lord and Samuel was a man with a heart for God and he lamented before the Lord about their requests. And this is highly significant. God says in verse 7, they've rejected me from being king over them. It's highly significant to remember that Saul is not Israel's first king. The Lord, their covenant God is their first king. But God is gracious to his stubborn and hard-hearted people. God wisely gives them a king that reflects the human choice. In 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 and 2, he's described as tall and handsome. I started, I kind of nicknamed him in my study as Too Tall Saul. He was head and shoulders over everybody else in the crowd. But God is not finished with his people. As Saul's disobedience, and you can read the story in 1 Samuel 8 and beyond, as Saul's disobedience grows and God rejects him eventually from being king, God sends Samuel to anoint another one, a man after God's own heart. David, the forgotten, insignificant shepherd boy, is anointed king over the Lord's people. You fast forward to 1 Samuel 17, one of the best known, best loved stories in the Old Testament, isn't it? David and Goliath. And we all, before I came to know the Lord Jesus as my Savior, I acted in a play. I was very young. I plagued Goliath. I got to be hit on the head with a stone and fall down dead. It was a great part, I tell you. The armies of Israel lined up for battle against the Philistines. Daily, for 40 days, Goliath comes forward and he challenges the Israelites to single combat by champion. They figured out... If you line up a bunch of armies and they all march together and they all wield the sword and the spear and the bow, a whole bunch of people are going to be dead and they'll go back the next day and do the same thing over and over again until they run out of men and then they kind of decide who gets to be king. And then someone said, hey, I got a great idea. Instead of we wasting all this human life, let's just pick a champion, one from each side, and he'll go out and he'll represent the army and whoever wins the, the battle wins the war. And the Philistines said, great idea. Come on out, Goliath. And out came Goliath, this gigantic man, a tall man. Sound familiar? He's three meters tall. Who would be the most likely champion from Israel to fight this man? How about too tall Saul, the Israelite king, head and shoulders above everybody else? I mean, this is exactly why Israel wanted a king. We want someone to go out and fight our battles, right? But for reasons that are not too hard to guess, Saul doesn't go. Apparently an artist uh, has painted a picture of Saul. I want to one day find this picture because I've heard it described. And it's described like this. the Saul is sitting inside his tent on his throne and he slouched right down in his throne. Trying desperately to appear shorter than he really is. And the artist paints it as his maddened eyes, bloodshot eyes, staring wildly into the darkness. This is their king. This is one of the qualifications for the job. I can imagine in today's day, a delegation would go from the tribes of Israel with the contract of Saul and say, Now, King Saul, let's review your contract. Clause number three says you go out and fight our enemies. Well, he's right out there. What are you doing in here? The salt doesn't go. The God in magnificent grace towards his people, he has already chosen and he's already prepared and he's raised up a man after his own heart to deliver his people. And David comes to the battle line. He reassures the soldiers and commanders that this Philistine will die because he has defied the armies of the living God. And David goes into battle not with the sword and the shield and the armor of King Saul. He goes with the simple implements of a shepherd. And he glorifies the Lord as he tells Goliath, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. And by God's grace and guidance, David's stone finds its mark and Goliath falls. And beloved, I want you to know the story has got nothing to do with fighting the giants in your life. It displays the need of God's people for a God-sent deliverer. It displays God's provision of that need. The story serves as a promise that one day David's infinitely greater son, the God-man Jesus the Christ, will come and he will defeat not merely the Philistines, but every enemy of God's people. Israel's one true king, their Lord, their covenant God, had already delivered them over and over and over again. Consider, he delivered them out of Egypt and slavery. He delivered them from Pharaoh's armies. He delivered them from the enemies in the wilderness. He delivered their enemies before them as they conquered the land of Canaan. He delivered them through the hands of the judges, men like Gideon, through whom God delivered them from the countless Moabites and their countless camels. And in faithfulness to his people, God delivers them from the Philistines through David's hand. Israel needs a king to deliver them because God's people cannot fight the battles that truly matter for themselves. We all need a king, a champion, to go out into battle for us, to solve our greatest problem, which is our sin and God's wrath against us for that sin. We all need a king, a champion, to defeat our three great enemies, which we all have, the world, The enemies outside of us, the flesh, that's the enemy inside of us, and the devil, the unseen enemy that we all encounter. Beloved, listen, what I find so alarming in talking to Christians today, as I do visitation and and not just in this church but other believers as well, I hear so many of us live as if our enemies remain undefeated. The gospel, we've come to believe that the gospel will give us entrance into the next life. But the journey through this life requires something else, something more. The gospel will get you out of hell and into heaven. But we all need all sorts of psychologies and medications to deal with life between here and there. And that is a lie of the devil. I'm sorry, but that's the truth of it. Listen, Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not only the only answer to our sin problem. The gospel is also God's only answer to all our enemies. The gospel is God's sure and certain, unfailing, unfailing, non-addictive answer to depression and anxiety and despair and hopelessness and discouragement and mental health, addictions, dependencies, and so much more. And if those are your struggles, look to Christ. He will never leave you nor fail you. I was talking with one dear sister in the Lord, and she said, she's not that old in her faith. She looked at me and she said, I learned a little while ago, it's quite simple. You simply package up those anxieties and struggles and you give them to the Lord. I thought, you know what? That's the right answer. That's exactly the answer. 1 the, the, Peter 5, 6 and 7 tells us, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Brother and sister in Christ, I urge you, cast your burdens on the Lord, and for goodness sake, leave them there. Don't we do that? <laughs> We're great at that. Oh Lord, I got this problem, and here it is. And we go back and take it back, don't we? Listen, the gospel is the answer to all of life. We have been given a king who solved our greatest problem. Who defeated it in his death on the cross. And the gospel is also the answer to every enemy we face. And we will face them again and again and again and again. And the great tragedy is so much of the world's solution for those problems only create more problems of their own i have been thinking and i've asked a few of you what you think about the possibility of doing a sermon series that will go on for quite some time perhaps dealing with this simple thing how The gospel is God's provision for every step of life and taking up all those different things. And the overwhelming response I get is, that's a good idea. We should do that. And I'll be just brutally honest, because that's that's the way I believe in doing it. I believe in preaching the gospel. I absolutely do. You've heard me preach it enough to know that's true. But the danger is we start to compartmentalize our lives into thinking that the gospel just has to do with eternity. My salvation from wrath and hell. But between here and there, I'm on my own. And that's the lie that the devil is spitting out. And what's happening is Christians are buying into some of these other ideas. And they're being turned off and away. And before you know it, they're miles away from the God of the Bible. That's the danger. So Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And being Abraham's son, he is the source and means of God's blessings to all the nations. And that includes us. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. We're included. Christ, our high priest, offered himself for us as the once for all sacrifice for our sin. He was the propitiating sacrifice to exhaust and remove all of God's wrath against those who believe in him and who repent of sin. Christ, our king of kings, by our suffering, his suffering and dying and rising again, has defeated all our enemies for us. And Christ, our king, in his gospel, calls us... To submit to his kingship and his authority, to turn away from all our sin, our disobeying of God, to turn towards him, to obey his commands, to live as his subjects, his kingdom subjects, and to make his kingdom known to those all around us. His kingdom message has found the words. Of Matthew 4, the first reference to his preaching, and Mark 1, the first reference to his preaching in that gospel, and it's the same message repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus is the promised king, and Jesus is a necessary king, and thirdly, Jesus is the exalted king. He came. Born as a tiny babe in the crude shelter of a barn. He came born the king of the Jews. He came as the only savior of the world. He came to set his people free. And as I studied, I was just awestruck again at how much the Bible has to say about our dear precious savior as the king. So as I finish our time and before we go to the Lord's table to remember the Lord, I want to finish on as high a note as I can. I want to lift our gaze to be amazed and awestruck at the greatness of our exalted Jesus. You know, the Bible gives at least eight high titles to Jesus Christ, the King. I'm going to work my way through them briefly. I have given you, I think it's over 40 Bible references. Take those home. Look them up. Scan through them. There's such rich things in there to feed your soul. But notice this. First of all, in Psalm 47 and verse 7, Jesus Christ is the king of all the earth. He is the creator with all authority over his creation. This land is not your... You Remember that song, Woody Guthrie? This land is your land, this land is... No, that's not true. This land is his land. He owns it. He created it. It belongs to him. He stamped his authority over every square millimeter of this earth. Secondly, in Jeremiah 10 and verse 7, it says that he is the king of the nations. There is no human being outside of his authority. To live in sin is merely to mean you're living in rebellion against God. Those who live in sin are living in rebellion. And the gospel message is a call to them to submit and return to him. He's the king of the nations. In Micah 5 verse 2 and Matthew 27 verse 42, he is the king of Israel. He's a national king over his own people and nation. In Matthew 2 verse 2 and 27 verse 11, he is the king of the Jews. He's an ethnic king. And he's king over which ethnicity? All of them. None is outside his, the scope of his authority. Psalm 72 and verse 8 and First Timothy 6.15. He is the king of kings. He is the king over all other kings. He occupies the highest level of authority in existence. There is no greater, higher authority than Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our King. In Isaiah 32 and verse 1 and Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6, he is the king of righteousness. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus is always righteous, conforming to his own divine standard of moral, ethical, and legal righteousness. How do we know he's righteous? Do we compare him to some other standard? No, no. He is the standard by which he is compared and which everybody else is compared to. So if you think you're a pretty good person, good on you. Compare yourself to Jesus. It's an eye opening experience. It's true. He always is right. He always does right. He suffered and died so that we who believe will be declared right in his sight. What gives us hope, what calms our fears and our anxieties, what calms us as we go to sleep at night and we are all facing a level of unknown is the fact that because I believe in Jesus Christ and because I have repented of sin... I am declared right in his sight. It's like he took a great big stamp. He stamped on the back of my head or on the back of my shoulders, righteous. And He how did he do that? Because all of a sudden I got good? No. He imputed all of his righteousness on me and then declared me righteous in his sight. That gives me hope. That calms every fear. And being truly God, the Bible tells us in Psalm 24, verses 7 to 10, that Jesus Christ is the King of glory, the King with all glory, the King having all glory, and the King deserving all glory, that we could reflect back to Him. That's what worship is, brothers and sisters, is standing here and reflecting back to God in the voice that we sing and the voice of prayer and the hearts that rise up in praise to God is to reflect back to Him His glory. But it goes further, the Bible also gives us Jesus' descriptions of the type of king he truly is. He is first of all the exalted king. He's lofty and exalted in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. He's raised up and seated in heavenly places in Ephesians 1 verses 20 and 22. And he has a name that's above every other name. The Bible tells us so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's an exalted position. If we're lucky, we might get two out of ten to say, hey, you know, Jimmy Joey over there, he's a pretty cool guy. But when you recognize that every single voice, every single knee will declare that he is Lord. Even those in hell will lift up their voices and declare he is Lord, and we're wrong. Nobody will go to hell saying we don't deserve to be here. They'll all go to hell saying I deserve this and nothing else. He's exalted. He's also the enthroned king. He's enthroned eternally in Psalm 45, verses 3 to 7. He's enthroned over all the nations in Psalm 18 and verse 43. He's enthroned among his enemies in Psalm 110 and verse 2. And he will be enthroned in Zion and Jerusalem in Psalm 2 and verse 6. He is the enthroned king, ruling and reigning. Meaning what? Meaning that he rules in my life. He reigns as king over me right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are brought into submission to him as your sovereign Lord. Obedience isn't a, well, you know, give it some thought maybe and just pray about it and maybe see in a few days if I feel like doing it. No, it's not that way at all. Obedience is now because he is the king. He's a shepherding king. You know one of the things I love about the Lord Jesus is, pardon the long word, the juxtaposition of two almost extremely, infinitely opposite ideas that come together beautifully, perfectly, and harmoniously in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king of glory. He's also a humble king. He's the king of all the heavens and all the earth, and he is a shepherding king. Just like David, the forgotten, insignificant shepherd boy that was crowned as king. So Jesus rests and feeds and waters and leads and restores and guides his flock in his paths of righteousness for the sake, the glory of his name. He is the shepherd who never leaves us nor forsakes us, even in the darkest of valleys. How can he possibly tell us, cast all your anxieties on me? Because he's walking right beside us. And every valley we go through, he is there every step of the way. He will see you through, Christian. Jesus is a priestly king in Zechariah 6.13, building the temple of the Lord and reigning as priest on his throne. He is both king and priest in Zechariah 6. And, uh, Revelation 19 is the faithful and true king, seated on a white horse judging and waging war. And he's also in Zechariah 9, verse 9, a humble king. He was born in a manger. He was raised in obscurity. He ministered in gentleness and humility. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He was rejected and delivered over to his enemies. He was scourged and crucified to the sound of man, his creatures mocking and jeering him. And yet he pleaded for his father to forgive those Who so cruelly treated him. He came as a humble king. But make no mistake. Jesus is also a conquering king. Coming back in Revelation 6 and verse 2. And 17 and verse 14. Riding a great white horse. To conquer and overcome. With his faithful called and chosen people. And finally Jesus is the judging king. He will sit in righteous perfect judgment. Of all the nations. 2 Timothy 2, verses 4 to 8. Oh, beloved, listen, there is no God like the Lord our God. Amen? Amen? Our problem, one of our many problems, put it that way, is our view of God is simply too small. We're like the world around us who likes to think of Jesus as a little baby in a manger instead of a king. First on a cross and then crowned and on a throne. That's our God. There is no king like our king. He came to deliver us, his people, from our greatest problem, which is sin and the wrath of God that we face. He calls us, you and I, to repent of sin and believe the gospel. And the simple question for us today is, will you do that? Will you repent of sin and believe the gospel? Because to refuse to repent is disobedience to the King. Of heaven. And to refuse to believe the gospel is likewise disobedience to the King of heaven, to God Himself. He came to deliver us, His people, from our enemies, the enemies that we all face. He came to call us and bring us into His kingdom. And He remains with us in the presence of His Holy Spirit to continue with us to the very end of the journey of this Christian life. He is, as Matthew says, He is the Christ, the anointed prophet of God question like I asked last week is, are we listening and are we obeying? He is the Christ, the anointed high priest who is God. And the question is, are we trusting in him and his sacrifice on our behalf? Finally, he is the Christ, the anointed king who is God. And the question before us is, are we submitting to his kingly rule over our lives? Are we allowing him to not only save us for eternity. But also to deliver us from, from and through the problems of this life. That's the message. If I could say it a different way. Come and worship the king. Come and worship. Not just with voices and singing beautiful hymns. But come and worship with your very lives. Day in and day out as you walk with him. Day by day. Wow, oh, what a great Savior we have. Is he your Savior? Amen. Let's, uh, let's, I'm going to take a few moments. I want to just give you some time to stop and to think, to reflect. Consider your life and what needs to be sorted out between you and the Lord. Maybe even things that need to be sorted out between you and some other person. In a few moments I'll come back and we'll give thanks for the bread and the wine and we'll remember the Lord together.